Good morning, guys. Um, my name is Arno. If you're visiting with us, um, it is my privilege to preach God's Word to us this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we are preaching through the book of James, and it has been an incredibly challenging book. It's gone straight to the heart of the gospel. It's gone straight to the heart of our lives, and um, in some ways, James is like a big mirror that we keep looking at, and we, we, we see ourselves in it, and we go, hey, and then we hear the gospel coming straight back at us. Um, this morning, we are going to, this is the second last preach in our series on in James. Aren't you excited? Um, Claire is the most excited. She's I can't wait for us to move on. James feels like it's been like open heart surgery for the last two or three months. Um, for us as preachers, it's been the same. Um, and it's been an incredibly privilege just to have God's Word do stuff in us. I wanted to just say about worship, um, I'm a fan of smaller worship teams and a bigger worship team <laughs> where I can sing and I can hear my brothers and sisters sing behind me. I think there's something in Lost when we have big bands and big loud worship and we don't get to hear our brothers and sisters' voices and something that makes church special for me on a Sunday is standing, I can hear this person, I can hear that person singing in the background, I can recognize voices, isn't it? There's something to, to say about smaller bands and, and louder audience participation. This morning I've entitled my preach, Are You There Yet? Are We There Yet? Um, it's a great question. We've all been asked that by little kids. Um, it's cute when it gets asked once. When it gets asked a hundred times on a trip, it's no longer a cute question or a nice question. I'll tell you our strategy as young parents. We had three kids. We were in Cape Town. They were all young. They were all, the oldest was Keegan, I think was seven or eight years old or so. We were in Cape Town, and we had family, and we still had you guys here in East London. We were, we were working and living in Cape Town for three years, and we, we would come down for holidays, but we would travel by car, all holiday. Now imagine being in a car for 11 to 12 hours with three young kids, etc. You can imagine the question, how often it gets asked. So after the first trip, trying to make it during the day, Claire and I had a strategic parent movie meeting, and we decided the best thing is to do is we, before we go, we're going to take them to McDonald's at 6 in the evening, have McDonald's as a treat, and then we're going to make a bed on the back of our car where all three of them can lie down and sleep and pass out. What's wrong, Chloe? Remember that? Chloe remembers well. And Chloe and Josh were the smallest, so they used to sleep on the back seat, head to toe to toe, like that, on a bed. And then behind the, the, the driver and the passenger seat, we used to fill it up with, with, um, with pillows and stuff. And Keegan used to sleep behind there. And by 7 o'clock, they were sleeping. And the next thing they did is they would wake up the next morning on the farm or in East London with their family, not once asking, are we there yet? What's happening? It was brilliant. Parents, you can thank us later. But we used to literally change the way we traveled to not have kids nagging us about, are we there yet? We are, very, we are very much like kids, as even adults as Christians. Are we there yet? It's a question we all ask. Would you turn in your Bibles to James? And James is going to address this impatience in our hearts um, very, very pastorally this morning. We're going to read five verses together. James 5, verse 7 to 12. Are we there yet? Are we there? Are you there yet? Okay, verse 7. Okay, no more dad jokes. Um, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the, f the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. He's trying to say something to the church here. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, 
so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Literally, the picture here is you're at home and you're grumbling against your neighbors in the, and he's saying, hey, Jesus is standing at the front door of your house and he can hear everything you're saying. What's wrong, Will? Will is like, whoa, heck, what the heck? Anyway, I just saw some people there. <laughs> okay, listen, guys, that's between you guys. I don't want to get involved with the marriage stuff there. Behold, we consider those blessed who, who remain steadfast. I love that sentence. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is a compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, this is making promises, either by heaven or, on, or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What an incredible passage in James, eh? Can you understand why we took our time as a church preaching through this book? Can we pray together? And let's bring our hearts before God this morning. I want to invite you to invite God's Spirit to use the Word of God to do work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we do that right now. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We thank you that God's Word is alive and kicking. It is alive and doing work in us. We invite you now to, with your scalpel, come and do open heart surgery. We bring our hearts before you. Lord, we want, to, we want to bring our hearts before you and say, Lord, if there's anything in us that is not of you, is not godly, that, that, that does, does not do us well in worshiping you, would you remove that? We come humbly before you. We thank you for your word that says it's your kindness that leads us to places of repentance. Where we say, sorry, Lord, we're not patient. We, we are grumblers, Lord. We do. We overpromise and underdeliver, Lord. We, we bring those things to you this morning. Would you do that in our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. We willingly, I think it's a great picture for, for any of us on any Sundays, when we come to the preached word of God, is to come and say, here I am. This is honor on the table. God, would you do work in me? He is so worth waiting for. James kicks off with his promise and encouraging, be patient. He is so worth waiting for. Listen to the language there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What is he? He's saying Jesus is coming back. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient until about it, until they receives early and late rains. But he's speaking of a patience in that God is coming. He's, he's saying to them, be patient while you wait for Jesus. He is so worth us being patient about or worth waiting for. The church in the is the minority in the society, and we not always and society is not always favorable towards us. It's not always easy waiting until Jesus returns, is it? Especially as a Christian. James is saying to the church, especially for us, we're never meant to be the majority in the society. We are always going to be those who are in the minority. It's going to be tough waiting until Jesus comes back for us. How are we to think? What should our attitudes be while we wait for the return of Christ? He is so worth waiting for, but how do we get there? How do we wait? How do we wait? In his language, how do we wait well? Be patient then, James says to us. The rationale yeah, he's thinking is very clear. In times of injustice, it's easy to wonder where God is or if God sees us. Isn't that true? Hey, in times of injustice, over the last years, we've had the, what do we call it, the, the commission, um, the truth, not the truth and reconciliation, that was, that was post-apartheid, there was the, the Zonda, I just lost the word, Zonda commission, hey, and I remember, I'm, I'm trying to, some big civil organizations, they said, you will have to stay patient, don't lose your patience. We are going to get there. We, the commission will do its work, but remain patient. We have to keep waiting. And it's hard. I don't know how many of you feel the Zonda Commission took too long. Most of us think 
it took too long, isn't it? Most of us are going to South Africa going, it took too long and now we're waiting for prosecutions. That's also going to take too long. And it seems like that always in human kind of history is that in seasons of injustice where things aren't working out well, it seems like God isn't noticing or seeing us. Saying, where are you? are you? Are you even aware of what's going on in this beautiful country? Why is he not working? Why is he not intervening faster? And James is saying, don't take matters into your own hands. He's saying, keep trusting God. Even in unjust and unjust systems, keep trusting. Keep your eyes on God. But he doesn't just call us to patience. He says, it's not patience without an end in result. He's saying, be patient. Why? Because the Lord is coming back. Be patient. Why? This is happening. It's worth waiting for, isn't it? He's saying there's something worth waiting for. There's something worth relaxing about. This is not it. This is not your destination. This is not the final destination of your life. Jesus is with us through the Spirit and His presence, but He is returning and it is worth waiting for. This is the real thing that we should wait for. Deuteronomy, um, it's not on the board, says this. So, so if you faithfully obey these commandments I'm giving to you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land and in season and out of season. Both autumn, spring rains, etc. will come so that you may grow your crop and new wine and new olive oil. God promises us just remain faithful in this season. Be patient in this season. One of the, the great gifts in my life is that I'm married to a farmer, farmer's daughter, sorry, not a farmer, a farmer's daughter. And Claire's dad has played such a role in my life as a young guy. Um, I am impatient. I am the epitome of impatience. If you're married to me, if you know me, if you've been my friend for a while, you know Honor's an impatient guy. But Claire's dad would like, we'd start building a table, and I would go to the farm going, we're going to saw the tree down, we're going to dry the tree, we're going to sand it down, we're going to make the table, and by the end of the weekend, I'm driving home with the table. That's my kind of thinking. Oh my gosh. Claire's dad would sand it and sand it, and then he'd see a blemish and say, no, let's go again, honor. And he, he's taught me in many, many ways patience. He's also taught me what it's like to go through drought and plentiful. We've been married for 27, this, 27 years. We've known each other for 28 years um, this year. And I've seen the farm in plentiful when rivers are flowing, the dams are overflowing, everything's green, the, the grass is so high you can't even see cattle. But I've also been on the farm where it's completely dry, where there's dust and, and, and drochi bosses everywhere and the cows are scrambling and the sheep are scrambling for food. And I've seen those seasons change and how slowly it changes. And it's taught me a few lessons like whatever you're building, if it's, if it's worth it, it's going to take time. What God is doing is going to take time. God, if, when Jesus says, I'll build my church, we think it's going to happen overnight. No, it's, he's going to take his time. He is a carpenter. It just so happens that Jesus was a carpenter's son. He knew how long it took to make something very precious and look good. And Jesus is not a quick fix Jesus. He's taking his time with us as the church, with you as a person. And when he says builds the church, he's talking about building individual lives. We, we think we're building our lives. He's building, doing the building. And sometimes it goes quickly and sometimes it takes a long time for God to do what he's doing in our hearts and our lives. I'm sure you have friends like that. I'm sure you're one of those friends. Where you're going, I wish God could work a little bit faster in his life. <laughs> I've got friends like that. And then I've got friends like Arno. I'm going, I wish God could work faster in his life on certain areas. But the one thing that we learn in Scripture, and James is saying to us here, is just to 
Be patient even when it's not going well, even when it's not working out the way you want. Stay patient. Don't lose your cool, in other words, in, in our language. And then he moves to verse 8. He goes to hang in there with hope. There's a hope that we hang in for. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I was preparing, and it just so happened to be, um, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm enjoying some, in, my, in the background, we've always got some of the, the music that I grew up with as a young, t- young person. And I was watching some live comfort, concerts, and I was watching U2 and Bono and the guys do a live concert, and they did Psalm 40. They sang Psalm 40. And I'll tell you what grabbed my attention. I'm going to read the psalm to you because I'm going to read the song words of Psalm 40. They've adapted a bit. Um, nothing unbiblical. It's beautiful. Um, so this is how the psalm goes, or how Bono and them sing. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and he heard my cry. There's the word patiently. How do we wait on Jesus? Patiently. We all need to hear that a bit, eh? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pits, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long? How long to sing this song? He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. And what happens in this one concert, um, I'm trying to think where it was, but it's in 2005. They play the song, and as they end the song, band member after band member walks off the stage, and the whole crowd, the whole, like, I think they had like 80,000 people in the crowd, the whole crowd kept singing, how long, how long to sing this song? How long, how long to sing this song? And it leaves this eerie kind of feeling of, of humanity crying out, saying, God, how long are we going to worship here and not in heaven? How long are we going to have Sundays here when we're not with you worshiping in eternity? How long is it going to take for you until we experience you in your fullness? And I I watched that video, and at the end of it, I felt like it almost represents what's happening to all of us almost all the time. If you're a Christ follower, there is something, there should be something in you going, how long, how long to sing this song? How long are we not going to worship here? How long are we going to worship in eternity with God? There should be a craving in all of us going, this worship is amazing, but there's incredible worship coming. This, this church is amazing. These people are amazing. But there is a community waiting in eternity that we are going to be part of and, and worshiping with. And I just thought that, for me, grabbed me. This idea that in our hearts, and this was a secular, this wasn't a church meeting. This was people, and, and Romans speaks about that, the, that sons and daughters have a craving for God to come back. There's, a, there's something, like there's an emptiness in us craving God to come back. And when I watched the end of that concert and I heard the, a crowd of thousands of thousands of unbelievers singing, how long, how long are we going to sing this song? It's not just Christians craving. There's our friends that don't know Christ. Crave for Him. They are waiting, longing for God to break into their lives. They don't just know it yet. And then in Corinthians it says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm in your faith, even especially in tough times especially when there is injustice around you. Remember what we preached the first, a few weeks ago. We preached about the wealthy and the poor and how the wealthy were oppressing the poor. This is the church that are being oppressed. This is the church who is saying, this is unfair. What's going on in life is not just, it's not fair. How should we go? And it's to the, the oppressed, the, the church in trouble, the church going through all this trouble, that James is saying, how do you go? You go through it patiently. 
You go through it standing firm in your faith. Don't lose the gospel. Don't lose your faith. Hold on to Jesus. Isn't that a song? There was a song, Hold On To Jesus, years ago. Hey, Hazel, do you want to come do it for us? But there was a song, Hold On To Jesus, Stand Firm In Your Faith. And James reminds the church that it is to stand firm. We're so wired as human beings to want to progress all the time, isn't it? We want to grow. We want to move forward. We want to progress. We want to, we want to, we want to change the world for Jesus. Sometimes the best thing that we can do for Jesus is just to stand still and go, I'm, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to place my faith, my faith in someone or something else. I'm going to keep placing my faith in Christ. No matter what there is that I could think or I might even lose if I don't move. James speaks to the church here. And if you read this, you're going, hey, honor. James said Jesus is near. His return is near. But it doesn't look like it because 2,000 years later, Jesus still hasn't come back. And relax, none of us have missed it. No one's going to miss Jesus coming back. I can promise you that. You don't have to worry that one day you're going to wake up and your neighbor's lawnmower is running on his own and there's no one behind the lawnmower like Jesus is wrapped at some. And you, we will all know when Jesus comes back for us. But what James is saying for us clearly here is nearness is not necessarily immediacy. He's saying Christ's return is near. doesn't mean it's tomorrow. We've learned that. 2,000 years of nearness doesn't mean immediately. So you say, how does that apply to my walk and my own faith? Remember who he's writing to. He's he's writing to a church who's struggling to control their tongue because of what's going on, the injustice around them. They are grumbling. They are not patient. They are leaving their faith. They're leaving the church. They're walking away from Christ because of society and the world they're living being unjust. And he says, hold on, Christ is near. But it doesn't mean that he's immediately here. What it means for me is that when I go through my own personal walks, my own valleys or dark places or tough times in my faith, just because Christ doesn't immediately rescue me out of it doesn't mean that he's not close to me. Christ can be close to me without rescuing me out of my my palaver or my nonsense or or my valley. He can still be close to me. But it doesn't mean that he immediately rescues us. And we live, and I'm saying that deliberately for us as a church because we're living in a church culture Christ's immediacy is equated to nearness. Unless he rescues me immediately, then then I can't be close to him. And and then what happens is if he doesn't come through and he doesn't answer my prayer immediately, what does it mean? It must mean that I'm far from him. Can you see how that infiltrates our thinking towards the gospel? Just because God doesn't answer our prayers immediately doesn't mean that he's not close to us. What does Psalm 23 say to us? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He says, you're still going to go through a valley. I'm still with you. And I think the church, we need to all hear that more and more. Just because God's not answering all your prayers immediately doesn't mean that he's any further away from you. He's still close to you. We can be secure as sons and daughters that just because I'm going through no, no, he's still with me. Hey, we don't place our faith in our prayers being answered. We place our faith in who's answering those prayers and who's with us in those moments. And then he goes straight for the jugular. He goes, no grumbling allowed. He literally just goes for grumbling. He says, you are not allowed to grumble. Stop your grumbling is his, his kind of language here. And I've put here in big, bold letters, Arno, oh, stop your grumbling. No grumbling allowed. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how honest I want to be on this one as your pastor. Um, I have very faithful wives, wife, sorry. 
And f I meant, okay, I meant, guys, can you see, I, I'm not, I'm, I nearly said, okay, I'll keep quiet. Years of preaching has taught me when you're in trouble, keep quiet rather than try and dig yourself out. I have many friends and one wife that are very faithful to me, that God has helped in seasons. And, and this area for me has been something that God has been really challenging me on, my attitude, my grumbling. You don't have to switch. I don't even watch South African news anymore. It's a spiritual discipline of mine not to watch it anymore because of what happens to me when I watch it. There's something that happens that, I, that I'm not able to watch it without walking around grumbling and becoming negative and losing my patience. <coughs> Should we start in South Africa reasons to grumble? We'd rather not. Hey, hey, we've got a generator running outside. We've got a beautiful settler's way that, that they tell us we are not allowed to ask when they'll be finished. It will be finished when it's finished and we will like it. But we don't have the right as citizens to say, give us a due date. Hey, there's some other stuff. Um, there's some beautiful stuff. <laughs> I, I was bragging that we're going away to the Transkai for a holiday where there's no electricity. And the one friend said, you could have stayed home. Like, why bother? <laughs> why go? <laughs> like, in the, the Transkai, we used to like, have a generator for electricity. He says, you might as well just stay home, Anna. It's like, it'll be the same experience. Kumani, good to see you, buddy. You're over your injury. Sorry. Jeez. I know some of that. We'll talk later. Sorry, guys. This young man had a, had a serious rugby injury a, a week or two ago. Again, what is, G, what is James? James pulls the big postural. I don't know if he's manipulating us here or not, but he says, the judge is at the door. It's hard to imagine that Jesus is closer to our grumbling than that. Hey, Arno, when you're driving in the car and your poor wife is listening to you grumble, Jesus is sitting on the back seat listening to your grumbling. When you're at home and you think it's just you and your wife or you and your family grumbling, Jesus is at the door listening to, how would it change the way we speak if we knew that Jesus was in the room next door, in the, in the seat next to us when we spoke? It should be challenging to us. Hey God, how would, what would come out of my mouth if you were there? It matters. James is very, very clear that Jesus judges such grumbling. He is not a... Jesus is not for the grumblers or the moaners. He's not for us. He's not on my side. He's not with honor when honor's. He's with him, but he's not for him when he's grumbling. He's saying, hey, honor, change your language. Such words are judged. It says that he judges those words. What is in your heart here, honor? What is going on on your inside that you grumble like this? It certainly means that we can be patient and that he's near that we can stand our holy ground and we don't have to speak like the world around us. That we can speak truth, but we don't place our faith in the situation. We place our faith in our God. We trust Him. So I want you to imagine something with me now. Imagine your perfect holiday. Just imagine it quickly. Just think quickly. Your perfect holiday. Like the perfect space and and place that you would like to go to. If money wasn't an issue, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Okay, James, not, it's not Italy, Lisa Ann. 
Imagine now, because I know this matters for many of you, you've got the perfect, you've all got, you've all got your holiday spot, eh? I hope you've got one, at least one, nice one, the best. Now imagine, because I know it matters to many of you, imagine you're in the best shape you've ever been in physically. Yo, I got you. I got so many of you. We've got, we've got a holiday coming in three years. I'm starting gymming and I'm going on holiday. There's a Bali bikini I need to slip into. Anyway, that's not me. That's not for me. I'm just saying. So imagine the best holiday space. You're in the best physical shape, healthy, looking good, looking like you were 21 again. The weather is perfect on this holiday. You could order the weather the way you wanted it. The food is incredible. All your favorite food, like your mom used to make it. Even better, your granny used to make is there waiting for you. And you're with the best person you can possibly imagine. So imagine taking the, your best friend, or your, hopefully it's your husband or your wife. If it's not, you're in trouble. Um, but imagine you've got the best person, your person with you on this holiday. But wait, there's one more. Imagine that this holiday never, ever ends. I say to you, once you start, it's just never going to end. Would that be worth waiting for? Would that be worth patiently waiting and enduring a bit of nonsense? Would it be, what would you sacrifice for that holiday? How would you wait for that holiday? See, as Christians, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for an eternity. How long? How long must we sing this song? There's a holiday coming. There's a place coming with the greatest person that ever lived waiting for us. He's making room for me. He promises me the most incredible feast I've ever had with the most incredible people. And it's never going to end. Honor, how are you going to wait until that day? I want to wait well for that day. I want to wait well. Everything in this life is small. The, the, the moments that you're worried about what you're going to look like on the beach, wherever you're going, and you're saying, I'm not going to have that burger, I'm going to have the salad or the lettuce, that sacrifice becomes nothing compared to what you're going to gain, is it? Why are the girls all laughing at me? Guys, no one won a rugby team eating salads. I can tell you that. Like, no one won a rugby game eating salads. It's, you have to have your meat. How would you wait if that was... See what happens with our grumbling is we grumble because we forget what we're waiting for. We grumble because we, we think this is it. This is everything. And then we realize, actually, this is not it. There's something greater. There's someone greater waiting for us. And when we remember that, we go, why would I grumble about this? Why do I expect that this is going to be perfect? I know I'm not perfect. I know that the society is not perfect. Why, how dare I have an expectation that everything is just going to fall my way? It just doesn't work like that. I don't care who you are, how much faith you have. Life doesn't just work out the way you want it. There's a God that actually has His way over your life that we have to submit. How do we wait? We would wait well, I would suggest. If that was it, He's saying, hey, your test is how would you wait? We would all wait well. The next one He speaks about fairness. It's not unfair. What you're going through is not unfair. If you're finding that this world and life is unjust and unfair, James is saying, actually, it's not unfair what you're going through. I think there is a, 
There is certainly a preaching or a theology out there that's very popular that where it is unfair that anything negative happens to you. It's unfair that God doesn't answer your prayer. It's unfair that you get sick. It's unfair that you don't have a job. It's unfair that, you, that your kids don't love Jesus. It's unfair that, that the, the country's not doing well. It's unfair. There's a theology that says you deserve better as a Christian, as a Christ follower. God, It is unfair when God doesn't answer this. Remember, we are not the first people in history to find waiting for Jesus' return and restoration of all things tough. If you're finding waiting for Jesus tough, I want to say to you in good company, generations before you and I found it tough, waiting for Jesus. They found themselves doubting. Some have found themselves walking away from him. Some have found themselves grumbling and being everything but gospel preachers, but grumbling preachers. Listen to verse 10 and 11, with what, how James helps us here. He's saying, hey, if you think it's unfair, let me remind you quickly. As an example of the suffering and the patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. People that preached the gospel suffered for God. I've been reading lately because we're preparing for a conference, reading on some of the most amazing preachers ever to preach the gospel that you and I admire, that we quote, whose books we read. And then you double-click into their personal lives and you go, what, how they suffered personally in their own lives. Some of the biggest heroes of our faith have dealt with depression, tried to commit suicide, had wives that used to sit in the front pew, heckle, mock them while they preached. Some of the most amazing men in ministry had those kind of challenges they faced. Anyway, some take the prophets for example. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. If you want to be blessed, remain steadfast. Have, heard the steadfastness of, have you heard of the steadfastness of Job? And you've not seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's a few lessons on this one for us to learn. First is that James is trying to teach us here that his readers are going to go through tough and it's not novel. It's not new for Christians to suffer. If you think it's, whoa, Christianity used to be so easy, that was never the case in history. It is not a new thing for Christianity to be challenged. It's not new for you and your personal faith to be, be struggling to wait for Jesus. It is an age-old dilemma. Every generation before struggled to hold on to their faith through tough times. That should be, yay, I'm not alone. I'm not the first. Also, he reminds us that we can remain and should remain faithful in every challenging situation we face. The challenge is not all the, the challenging situations coming. It's how we're going to respond. We're going to either say it's unfair and kick against God and say, I want, I want another gospel. Give me another gospel where, it's, where I, I don't have to listen to this. I want to press a, an escape button from this world and its trouble. And sadly, there are gospels like that that allows you to press a button and go, I don't have to be part of this mess. Or I'm not responsible for this mess. And we, we hide away from that. Those who suffer as Christians are no, we're not blazing a new trail. No, no, we, we're traveling on a well-worn path. If you find yourself, and we find ourselves struggling as Christ follows, and this is tough to be a Christian in my day and age, I'm going to say to you, welcome to the journey that many, many of us have walked before us. We are walking on, when you, when you, when I, even when I go fishing in the Transkai, there are paths <laughs> that others have walked. I can know where the fishing spots are. Why? Because the paths show me where the fishing spots are, where the guys walk to go fish every time they come to the wild coast. You and I have the privilege in 2022, when it comes to suffering in our faith, in our, in our times, to walk on the paths of old trodden paths. This is not new to us. It shouldn't shock us. James is saying, hey, remember these guys. And then he takes two examples. 
I'm going to use Jeremiah as his prophet and Job as the guy that he points to. So Jeremiah was this amazing prophet, um, but he had mainly, especially him, had an unhappy ministry. He was the guy telling the church, hey, what you're believing and what you're praying for is actually untruth. You need to listen to God. He was pointing out false prophets of the day. Um, it was impending judgment of God on his people because they were worshiping false idols. So he wasn't Mr. Mr. Popular at all. This is Jeremiah, the prophet. Preaching God's word and standing on God's word does not mean you and I will always be popular. And everybody going, yay, we want to hear that. <laughs> There's a lot of things about the gospel that offends us. Engler's leaving because she has a dear friend giving her a lift home. She's not offended. Thanks. But this is Jeremiah. His family betrayed him. He was beaten, put into stocks. He was imprisoned. He was threatened. And he was thrown into a well and forgot to be forgotten. This is someone that's serving Jesus. This is how his life ended up. Or do we believe serving Jesus, all of a sudden everything's going to click right for me in my life? Hey, I'm going to have the best wife, the best life, the best job, the best money. I'm never going to get sick again because I love Jesus. Actually, history shows in Scripture that serving Jesus is one of the most dangerous things you can do with your life. And through it all, Jeremiah remained faithful in his calling, speaking the Word of God. Everyday people, we want to remain faithful to the Gospel, no matter what our culture says, no matter what anybody else is saying, we want to remain faithful. No matter how popular we are or who says what about us, let it be said we preach the gospel clearly. We're, we're going to stand on this and we're not going to move, even if it's unpopular, even if you don't like it. We count it as blessed for those who persevere in James 5.11. And then he uses Job as his other example. And I think this is a, like a stroke of pastoral genius here. He's going, let me give you examples. People that you admire also struggled. Is that okay? Like, it should encourage all of us, doesn't it? When you, when you hear someone that you admire in their faith also struggled and, and battled. Job, someone who literally lost everything, his position, his family, and his health. Now, the dangerous thing is we look at Job and we think, oh, it's just a once-off in Scripture. We think Job's the one chapter of something going bad in a Christian's life. No, no, read the whole Bible and you'll see what happens to Israel, the disciple. It's not just a, a once-off. It's actually a, a pattern for all of us to learn from. Even his friends, in their attempt to provide comfort, ended up adding to his misery. They were saying, actually, maybe Job is your fault. Maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe you, you don't. Maybe there's sin in your life, Job. Maybe you've brought this all on yourself. And James now turns to Job's faith. And to Job's eventual outcome, he goes, how did that end up, what the Lord finally brought about in James 5, what God eventually did through Job and in Job? We see how that ends. We look at Jesus coming to earth, knowing what he's stepping into. Jesus, if he wanted prosperity and comfort, he would have stayed in eternity. He said, I'll stay there. I'm not going to get into that mess but willingly stepped into earth. We break bread on a Sunday to remind us of, of this incredible love that Jesus had for us, that he was prepared to step into my mess as an example that we should be okay with mess around us, that we're okay with when things get tough. But Jesus knew what he was heading into, stepped into our broken world, surrounded by in, imperfect people, still said, yes, I'll go. Hey, Yes, I'll, I'm go. Knew that he would suffer, knew that he, he would end up on a cross, and did it for us. Didn't avoid it, didn't stay home, didn't close the curtains going, oh, that's a big mess, earth, let's press reset, 
delete everything, control, alt, delete on earth and humanity, we start again. No, no, he stepped into it to restore our mess and what was broken on this earth. And then he ends with it like an interesting thing. And James does this through the whole book. You, you think you've got the main thought and then he ends with a verse. You go, where does that come from? He must have heard something in the congregation somewhere and he put this in. The last bit of the, of the passage for today. Promises don't impress. Promises don't impress. Have you ever had a friend like that? That loves making big promises to, to gain your confidence or to gain your, your trust or to, to be in on the crowd. They, they over-exaggerate their promises. They make sure that you understand this. And, then he, and James ends this passage with, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The oaths that he's speaking here is oaths that James would use, or people would use, I swear on God's name. In God's name. I would, you, you would bring God into the argument and going, okay, if you don't believe me, I'm, I'm swearing on God and making an oath like that. And oaths aren't necessarily condemned by Scripture, but promising on God's name is condemned and is not, not something that Scripture encourages us to do. God himself rarely swears by his name and on his oath. Paul once or twice calls and he says, um, calls God as his witness. Not even swearing on God. He's saying, as God is my witness, this is what happened. But he does it once, I think twice in, in, in 2 Corinthians he does it once. But what James is saying to the church here is, isn't that oaths are necessarily wrong, but he's saying, in our context, oaths should not be necessary. Why would they not be necessary? Because we shouldn't need to emphasis or emphasize the truthfulness of our, our, our speech for people to believe us. Everything we say should be true. He's saying, as a Christian, you shouldn't be making oaths. What you say should be true. When you say yes, it should be yes. When you say no, it's no. He's saying, so why do you need to make these exaggerated promises? You only do that because, you, because your word doesn't mean anything. He's saying, we should be living that whatever you say at face value is the truth without making big promises or exaggerated oaths. It's quite challenging in our day and age. Uh, someone got, my, got me onto a program. I can't um, necessarily go into all the details of it. But basically, you have a panel of three people having to judge whether someone is telling the truth or not. Um, and so they judge this guy by... by how, and, and what you find is the, the nervous guys, when, when he's trying to convince them of the fact that he, he thinks to convince them to vote, no, no we trust you, you can see the guys get nervous and they keep, keep talking and keep talking. And eventually he says, I promise you, I know this, I was there. And as soon as someone does it, they go, ah, you're fibbing us or you're, you're cheating or you're lying to us. James is saying, as the church, we should, we should have an ease about our language and when we speak, that when we speak to each other, when I speak to Kebo, my word should be enough for him. I don't have to try and convince him that I'm telling the truth. If, I'm, if I have to try and convince him all the time that I'm telling the truth, it shows you that there's something else going on, doesn't it? Aren't we all suspicious of that? Why are you making all these promises? And why have, <laughs> what's, what's going, what's really, we, we almost become more suspicious. And James is just encouraging the church. He's saying, hey church, let your yes be your yes and your no. Let, let, let people not have to second guess you. Don't fall into the trap of over-promising over and under-delivering to impress people or keep them with you. So today, in our text, what do we take home? Hey, let's wait patiently for him. He is so worth waiting. There is an eternity coming. And if we wait well, hey, we're going to enjoy that. 
And we should wait well. We should lay aside our grumbling and our impatience and, our, and thinking that this is it. No, there's an there's a eternity coming with the best people around us, with the best feast that will never end, in the best shape we've ever been in. That's coming for us. Let's wait well for that. Let's not be shy to sing, how long, how long, how long must we sing this song? There should be something in every one of us. I pray in your life as a follower of Christ that there will be this, how long must we sing these songs? When one day will we be with you, Jesus? Not because we're trying to escape this world, not because we don't like this world, or no, but this is not it. There is something greater coming. There is someone greater that we are going to be worshiping and worshiping with and to. I hope that makes you hungry for that. And I hope that causes us to wait well. Then when I get upset that settler's way is going to take four years to finish. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying when, when that thought enters my mind, I go, it's a small price to pay for what's coming. One day the roads will be paved with gold. There won't be any construction workers. It will, it will be done. It's smooth and open and wide. Hey, one day. But yeah, there will be potholes. Yeah, there will be speed bumps. And yeah, there will be drivers from the Eastern Cape. But one day, one day, how long will we be, how long to sing this song? How, Jesus, bring that day when we don't have to sing these songs anymore, where we just worship you in your presence, in the homes that you've promised that you prepare for us. Hey, that's what helps us wait well, remembering him and remembering that we're not the first. You're not the first Christian that's struggling with society at the moment or struggling with church or struggling with your faith or struggling with what's happening in the world. We we have generations ahead of us that struggled and yet remained faithful through it. Let, let us be a generation where these youngsters can watch us and go, they remained faithful to it. They waited patiently. Hey, they, their eyes were on eternity. Their eyes wasn't as if this is their everything. Let's lead by example. If we are to be honest, every one of us would say, we don't like waiting. No one enjoys waiting. Hey? And unless we have something so precious, so beautiful, it makes waiting a really dreadful task to say, how long must we sing? But when we know what, what's coming, hey? What Jesus did for us on the cross. I'm always amazed when they were pushing Jesus towards ministry. He says, I'll only do what my father tells me. When the time's right, I'll do this. He waited. He waited until, even Jesus waited. The Son of God waited until the time was right, until he got baptized, until the Holy Spirit came upon him before he started his ministry. He even waited. He knew it's coming. And what he was waiting for was a cross. And Scripture says that the, because of the joy set before him, Jesus had this vision of, hey, I'm going to die on this cross. And when I've died on this cross, and, I've, uh, and I've, I've destroyed the temple curtain and allowed sinners in before Christ that, that, can, that can be sins washed before Jesus, before my Father. He had this vision that one day we would be worshipping like this. And he has this vision that one day in eternity we will be worshipping and living in his presence. And because of that, he was prepared to go to this cross for us. Because it says, because of the joy set before him. Church, we have to have a joy set before us. 
We have to have a joy set before us. That's not East London where everybody's got a job and everybody's happy with each other. No, no. There's a greater joy than that coming our way as Christians. And when that joy takes over in our hearts and becomes the joy in our hearts that we can't wait for, the joy set before honor, honor, what does that look like for you? Then we wait well. Then we're patient. Then we understand that we're not the first to suffer. We know that because Jesus doesn't answer my prayer immediately, it doesn't mean that he's not close to me. We're secure with him. But boy, we still have this, how long, how long to sing this song? One day we're not going to sing in churches, we're going to be singing in front of our Father, with, our, with Christ there with us. For the joy set before Jesus. He went to the cross not to pay a, a debt or a bill. He went to the cross because of joy. He knew that there was a day coming where sinners, orphans, the blind would see. Sinners would come and their sins would be forgiven. Their brokenness would be restored because his body was broken for us. And we can come to him and say, God, would you, I'm broken. I, I do not wait well. It's okay to say, I'm broken. I don't wait well. I'm not patient. I'm a grumbler. It is, it, Jesus is big enough for you to confess your sins to. And his grace and his blood sheds powerful enough to cleanse that as white as snow. As if you never ever grumbled. As if you never waited impatiently. As if you've never ever forgotten that there's an eternity waiting where the real party and where the real joy is waiting for us. Let's thank him for that this morning. Jesus, thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for the joy set before you. Would you set before us a clearer joy of eternity? Would we wait well? Would we not grumble? Would we, would we see you? Would we trust you? Would we have confidence and securely know that you are close and near to us? Thank you for the blood that washes our sins. Lord, thank you that your blood cleanses me from my, and you washed away my grumbling, that you are forgiving me for that. You forgive me for when I'm impatient. You forgive me for my agitation with this world. Thank you for heroes of the faith that have gone ahead of us. No one bigger than you, Jesus, that endured the cross, endured suffering, being mocked. Have the Father turned away from you so that we would never endure being, being left on our own, never being abandoned by our Father. Thank you for washing our sins. As we eat and we drink, we, we pray that the joy set before us of eternity and of heaven would increase. And it would be an incredibly powerful thing in us to, to help us in a moment where we realize we can wait well for you. We do wait well for you, Jesus, but, they, but we do confess that there is an impatience in us for the day when you return for us, your bride, in Jesus' name. Let's eat and drink and be thankful.